Good morning, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I know that we are unable to be together to echo back and forth that that uh, back and forth that we do each and every Resurrection Sunday. But hopefully, you're doing that in your home as you uh, as you self shelter at this point in time. And and again, looking forward to the time we can all be together celebrating the Lord's Supper together and uh, and worshiping together and praising God, studying his word. What a glorious day that will be. And, uh, but we know the Lord's in control of all of that. And so we continue, as always, to put our trust and hope in him and know that uh, when that day is that he has ordained, that's the day we'll all be back together again. So we're looking forward to that. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, here this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19. But while you're finding your place there, uh, I want to uh, just uh, share a couple of things that uh, uh, are on my heart here this morning. You know, one of my favorite shows to watch, uh, back when I used to watch more TV than I do now anyway, uh, was a show called Cold Case. Do you guys remember that show? Uh, well, for those of you that are not familiar with that show, I mean, basically, the the basic idea behind this show was that there were a team of detectives that would go back and reopen these files of uh, cases that were uh, had been unsolved for many years. And then they would go uh, back and use today uh, and use the technologies and the advancements today, and they would go back and see if they could piece together through the evidence in light of all the new information, all the new technologies, and see if they could shed any light on this case at all. See if there was something new that popped out. And amazingly, there are things that uh, could have been missed even after years and years of having these things looked at and then put away. Many years later, sometimes decades later, uh, they're able to find new things. And then once they finish their investigation, they pull all those pieces together and then they present them to a jury. And that's kind of what I want to do here this morning for you, is I'd like to present to you uh, the greatest cold case, if you will, in the history of humanity, and that's the case of the resurrection. You see, all of Christianity really hangs upon this historic event. And that's precisely what Paul's point is in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And hopefully you found your, your way there now. And we want to look specifically now this morning at verses 12 through 19. So let's uh, look at that together, shall we? Uh, the Apostle Paul writes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty also. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And worse yet, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of, of all men the most pitiable. 
Now that's an incredible statement by the Apostle Paul, wouldn't you agree? Now I want to help you get this whole story right about what happened on that first Resurrection Sunday. And with all the information available in the world today, I want to show that most of it is relevant and or irrelevant, I should say, and not very useful. It's just people's theories and speculations floating around there on the Internet. And their opinions and speculations are not what really matters. What does matter is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus staked his entire reputation on the resurrection. If it didn't happen, everything that Jesus said and did is open to question. And so the issue before us this morning is not that of a crime, but of a claim. And it's of a, of a claim so incredible, so spectacular, so integral that it's either the cornerstone of Christianity or it's its greatest fatal flaw, if you will. And that claim is that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. The resurrection is the ultimate miracle of Christianity, or as I spoke about in my daily devotion on Saturday, it is the power of God. It is the greatest demonstration of his power. And it's at the very heart of the faith of Christianity. And if it never happened, my friends, then Christianity collapses into just a sea of mythology and billions of people have been deceived. And if it did happen, it authenticates everything Jesus did and said. It also means that unbelievers have a future day of judgment for their unbelief. And believers have the guarantee of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Now let me say it again as strongly and as forcefully as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Or some of you may have that word worthless. You see, the resurrection is either one of the most wicked, heartless, vicious hoaxes ever played on mankind, or it is the most fantastic, spectacular, supernatural fact in all of human history. And I want to hope to show you here this morning some overwhelming proof that Jesus Christ did exactly what he predicted and what the word of God had prophesied he would do. That he would die, be buried, and would rise again on the third day from the dead. You know, in uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it states that after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's what I intend to do this morning. I'm just going to have time uh, to show you three pieces of evidence. And then when you put them all together, we'll provide convincing proof that Jesus rose from the dead. And then perhaps we can close out this cold case claim and we can decide exactly what that means to us and what that means to uh, how we view Jesus and who Jesus is to us. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that even though we cannot gather together in uh, 
in uh, physical space like we usually do, Lord. We are gathered together in spirit here this morning. We are like-minded believers with our hearts knitted together through faith in you, through fellowship with other believers. And Lord, I thank you for that, that the church continues on, and that even though the service has been canceled, our church has not. It is your church, Lord, and I pray that you would glorify yourself in your word today. And I also pray, Lord, as always, if we have any who are listening today who are uh, have never trusted you as Lord and Savior of their life, that today might be the day when you would penetrate their hearts with the truth of your word and they would recognize their need for a Savior, that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. So, Lord, we trust in you. We claim your promise that your word never returns to you void. And so, Lord, open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up our spiritual eyes to your wonderful truth. Be with us now, Lord, in this hour. Glorify yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first exhibit, or uh, A, if I will, of evidence that I want to present to you is the empty tomb. You know, the Bible teaches that after all of the professional executioners crucified Jesus, that his body was placed in a tomb that was uh, hewn out of, the, uh, out of solid rock. And after his body was covered with about 100 pounds of spices, it was wrapped rather diligently and extensively in strips of linen cloth. And then a very large stone, estimated to weigh about two tons, was then rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And after this boulder, if you will, was put into place, there was a contingent of up to 16 Roman soldiers who were assigned to secure the tomb. Now, some of you may have seen pictures where there's just one or two guards standing around, uh, you know, the spear in their hands. And, but that simply is not the case. These men that were guarding this tomb were human fighting machines. These were uh, trained professional soldiers who were trained to protect the area around the tomb against an entire battalion. Imagine, if you will, if we had a, a squad of 16 Navy SEALs from SEAL Team 6 standing guard at the tomb, and you start to kind of get the picture that these aren't just uh, typical guards. These are the best of the best. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew uh, 27, verse 66, tells us that in addition to the Roman guard, they actually put a tamper-proof uh, seal, an official Roman seal on the stone. And then anyone who happened to make it past the Roman soldiers, which would have been highly unlikely, would then have to break this seal, and thus they would incur the wrath of the full weight of Roman law. But in spite of all of these precautions, in spite of all of these, uh, these provisions that they made, the stone, the soldiers, the seal, the tomb was empty on that first resurrection Sunday morning. And when the first people arrived to look in there, they saw only one thing. They saw the blood-stained burial cloths. It's as if Jesus had materialized 
right through them. So the empty tomb serves as exhibit A. It's a very powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, critics down through the years have not been able to refute the empty tomb. Instead, they've come up with other possibilities. Some say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. But this seems far-fetched when you consider that this group of ragtag fishermen who all ran from the garden when Jesus was arrested would now have the strength and ability and skill and fighting techniques uh, given to them to overpower 16 highly trained professional soldiers. Not only that, if that was even possible, they would have had to roll away a two-ton boulder, dispose of the body, and then manufacture a myth about his resurrection. A myth, then, that they gave their lives for, since there's no evidence anywhere that not any not a single one of these witnesses ever recanted their testimony, even at their deaths. So the whole disciple military coup theory doesn't seem very, pos uh, very possible either, does it? Another possibility that floats around there would be that the religious leaders disposed of the body, but this has some serious questions to it as well. If they had removed the body themselves, all they would have had to do is present the body as evidence. They could have paraded the remains through the streets of Jerusalem. They could have derailed Christianity before it even began to take hold. But they couldn't produce the body because the body was no longer dead. Jesus had been raised to life again. Again, my friends, Christianity rises or falls on this empty tomb. It is the one silent and yet infallible, undisputable witness. And critics just cannot explain it away. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then where is the body? And leaders of every other religion have died and stayed dead, and their bones are still in the ground. But that's not the case with Jesus. He claimed that he would rise from the dead on the third day, and my friends, that's exactly what he did. Amen? The empty tomb validates his claim. And while this alone provides substantial evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I will grant you that this fact was not convincing in itself to the original followers of Jesus. That even though Jesus had predicted that he would rise from the dead, even though the scriptures had prophesied that the Messiah would do it, it's obvious from their behavior that they weren't really expecting it. They needed more evidence, something that would remove all doubt from their minds. Well, let's look then at exhibit B, which would be multiple witnesses. You know, the early Christians did not believe that Jesus had risen just because of the empty tomb. They believed because they saw him with their own eyes. When they talked to others about Jesus, they didn't say, we found an empty tomb. Instead, they saw, we saw Jesus alive. And the most outstanding proof that Jesus rose from the dead is that more than 500 witnesses, 515 to be exact, saw him on not once, not twice, not a half a dozen times, but 12 different occasions. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God.
Jesus gave unquestionable proof that he was alive. And after his resurrection, he made an appearance to a woman in the cemetery. Later that same day, he walked through a closed door and talked to his frightened followers who were huddled in Jerusalem. In the evening, he walked side by side with two men as they made their way down a road to Emmaus. He appeared to both believers and doubters, to very uh, tough-minded people and to very tender-hearted souls. Several people saw him on more than one occasion, some alone, some with large groups, sometimes at night, sometimes during the day. The Apostle Paul, actually in this same letter in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through 6, lays it all out. He said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Let me just kind of give you the gravity of what we just read there. Now, if any of you have ever had to report a crime in your life, or if you've ever been in a, a, a vehicle, in an accident with your car, you know how important witnesses are to corroborating what your testimony is. So when police officers arrive on the scene, one of the first things they want to know is whether or not anyone had witnessed the event. Otherwise, it's pretty much your word against the other person's. Now, imagine if there's one eyewitness who saw everything and testified that your version of the account was true. And certainly, the officer investigating would be more inclined to believe your account, wouldn't he? Well, how about if there were three witnesses that all agreed with your testimony? They all supported and, and corroborated what you had said would happen. Well, wouldn't it be even stronger if 12 people were willing to testify that you were right? Or my case would be nearly impossible to refute if 100 people saw what happened and all reported the same thing. You would consider that to be airtight and totally convincing. But what if over 515 people saw everything unfold in front of their very eyes? I've never even heard of a trial where 500 witnesses support the one testimony flawlessly. I mean, to put this into perspective, if we were to call each of them to the witness stand to be questioned and cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, and if we were to go around the clock without taking a break, it would take from breakfast Monday until dinner on Friday, nonstop, no breaks, to hear them all. And after listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, all saying the same thing, all corroborating the same testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced that that was not true? My friends, that's how strong the case is for the resurrection of Jesus. Over 500 different individuals were willing to testify that they had seen the resurrected Christ. And when Christianity was launched on the scene, those eyewitnesses were still alive and they could still be questioned. In fact, the early church said, if you don't believe us, you can ask these other witnesses who saw him with their own eyes. 
That's exactly what happened. You know, Peter was one of those eyewitnesses. And he got up one day and he preached his first sermon. We find that in Acts chapter 2. And after summarizing what the prophets wrote about Jesus and how Jesus lived his life here on earth, Peter then laid out all the details surrounding his death. And he, we can actually view his sermon there in Acts chapter 2. It's been preserved for us for all time, for eternity, in the Word of God. And this is how he concludes his message. He said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Now, it's interesting that Peter preaches this sermon right in the heart of Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified and buried. And people knew the tomb was empty and that Jesus had appeared to hundreds of people. It was all verifiable. They could check it for themselves. You know, Peter wrote another letter that appears in the Bible because he wanted his readers to know that he didn't make the resurrection up, that he saw Jesus. He talked with him. He even had a fish lunch with him, if you will, on the beach. And you can find that statement in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. No. We were witnesses of his majesty. So if you just think about those two facts that I've presented to you this morning, Exhibit A, the empty tomb, Exhibit B, the multiple witnesses, I would, could, I would encourage you to just think about that this morning. But that brings us to Exhibit C, changed lives. You know, there's one more compelling argument for the resurrection. Actually, there are more than that, but this is what we have time for today. Those who met the resurrected Jesus have had their lives totally transformed. The resurrection is validated by the changed lives of his followers. Something happened to radically change this original group of followers. Because after Jesus was put to death, the disciples were scattered. The Bible tells us that they were gathered in a locked room on the top floor of a building. And they were filled with fear. Their leader had been, ex had been executed. Well, what would happen to them now? Well, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Can we get a little glimpse there? As that kind of sets the scene for us of what's, what's going to happen. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19... Then on that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you, or Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. That scene would forever change their outlook in their lives. Instead of confronting the disciples for not standing with them in his time of need, Jesus appeared to them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. This overwhelming peace was going to cut through their own guilt 
It was going to cut through any feelings of guilt or shame or failure on their part. And their fear was immediately replaced with joy. Peter was changed from a wavering witness, one who had denied Christ three times, to a solid rock of a man who became one of the pillars of the new church. These ordinary men, these fishermen, were transformed from frightened fishermen into one of the most effective ministry organizations the world has ever seen. But let me ask you a question. What is it that motivated them to go everywhere around the world and proclaim the message of the risen Christ? Was it for money? No. Matter of fact, most of them died with virtually no money. Power? No. No, they were hunted. Uh, they were persecuted. Fame? No. Infamous, maybe, but not famous. Every one of them had come from doubt and were moved to determination. They had came from confusion to the conviction of what they knew in their heart they believed. They, they had moved from fear to faith. Listen to how they died and see if it sounds like they were just making up the resurrection. We know Matthew was killed in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets until he was dead. Peter, Simon, Andrew, and Philip were all crucified. James was beheaded. Bartholomew was filleted alive. Thomas was pierced with lances. James, the less, was thrown from the temple and stoned to death. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Paul was boiled in hot oil and then beheaded. What could possibly have been so powerful that these men refused to recant even the smallest detail of their testimony facing such terrible persecution, facing their own death, yet they would not recant? I submit to you that the only thing that could have possibly changed their lives so dramatically was the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every one of these guys could have lived as if they... If they, uh, as they had, had they just said one statement, he's dead. But they refused. Why? Because they knew he is alive. See, Exhibit C is their changed lives. Not only did the resurrected Christ impact this group of individuals, but his life-changing power has transformed people from the third decade of the first century down through today. The combined testimony of changed lives attributed to the risen Christ now runs into the billions. From every race and every tribe and every language and every nationality in the world. And despite their various cultural and intellectual and social backgrounds, believers are united in their conviction that he is alive. And that Jesus has changed my life. I know that he's changed every other believer's life as well. And his life-changing power is just as available to us today as it was to this group of frightened followers, these frightened fishermen on that resurrection Sunday night. My friends, as we examine the facts of this claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of these claims, 
Thinking men and women will take the time to sort through all of the facts available and study the evidence that has been presented. First of all, how do you explain the empty tomb? How do you argue against multiple hundreds of witnesses who never recanted, never changed their story? And how do you get away from the fact that the resurrected Christ changes lives? The evidence is strong. It's compelling. In fact, millions of skeptics have approved, have approached the resurrection with the goal of disproving it. Because they know how important it is to the Christian faith. It is the linchpin of the Christian faith. But as they've gathered all the data, they've discovered that the evidence demands a verdict. What's your verdict on this Resurrection Sunday? I present to you, based on just the plethora of irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is all that he claims to be, that he is God who put on human flesh, leaving the splendor and the glory of heaven to live a sinless life so that all who put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior shall have eternal life. And he's proved every promise, every claim true when he arose from the grave on the third day, exactly as the scriptures had prophesied. And that, beloved, that is wonderful news for every man, woman, and child that has ever lived. But ultimately, the question comes down to this. So what? Okay, pastor, so you proved the resurrection was real. What difference does that make in my life? Well, you see, the resurrection answers at least five questions that we all have. Number one, the question of doubt. Is it true? How can I know it's true? What is truth? Like Thomas in the upper room there after the resurrection, who wouldn't believe unless he could actually touch the wounds of Jesus. The evidence for the resurrection can displace doubt in your mind. And I hope you come back next Sunday as we continue our study of Hebrews, where we'll see the message to a group of believers reminding them of the importance of enduring and hanging on to their profession of faith. Many out there listening perhaps have a lot of questions about the Christian faith. Well, we're going to tackle some of the biggest reasons to endure in your profession of faith during the next several weeks. I hope you'll join us again. So the first question is the question of doubt. The second question is the question of loneliness. Does anyone really care about me? Or do I matter? My friends, the resurrection proves that you matter deeply to God. That Jesus died for you as payment for your sins and rose again to demonstrate how important you are to him and that his truth is real and that his promises are true. How can he can now meet your deepest need for a relationship with him because he's alive? So that we have the question of doubt, we have the question of loneliness. How about the question of weakness? How can I find the power to change? Why can't I break those bad habits in my life? My friends, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you this morning. 
He can radically transform you just like he radically changed the first group of very weak people. You see, an encounter with a living Christ can give you strength and confidence like you've never had before. So we have the question of doubt. We have the question of loneliness. We have the question of weakness. How about the question of guilt? How can I get rid of my guilt and shame for all that I've done? Well, do you want some good news, my friends? Some news you can really use this Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection is the final proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as your sin substitute. Jesus is the sin-bearing Savior of the world. The resurrection validates this transaction. Jesus has forgiven us for our sins. He has removed all guilt. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. For all who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, our sinfulness has disappeared. It is put behind the Father's back this Resurrection Sunday morning. All because of the resurrection, we know that our sins are forgiven. Lastly, the question of death. What happens when I die? Because of what Jesus did, you can now know that there is life beyond the grave. That it's not just a theory, it's a proven reality. And because Jesus is alive, death will never have the last word for those of you who have trusted Christ as your personal Savior. My friends, you can't sit on the fence forever. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming and relevant to your life. And it is evidence that demands a verdict. And it's time to make your decision. It's time to encounter the living Christ for yourself. And if you want irrefutable proof for the resurrection, then let Jesus change your life. Open yourself up to him. Surrender your life to him. Turn to him now. Embrace the living Lord Jesus. My friends, in John chapter 20, when Peter and John ran into the empty tomb, they were surprised and startled, the word tells us. Verse 8 says that John saw and believed. Now, the word here is not the one used when we see something in the distance or even close up. It means that we saw with an inner light that leads to a conclusion. In other words, the light went on for him. That's exactly how I would describe my own testimony, my friends, is that one day I was in the dark and then suddenly the light went on. Has the light went on for you this morning? If so, then take the next step and believe. Put your faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ and ask him to save you from your sins, to change you, transform you from the inside out. As many of you know, the Resurrection Sunday is a very special time for me personally because it was on Resurrection Sunday nearly 20 years ago now that the Lord saved me from my sins. As I sat in the pew at Portage Bible Church and listened to the message of the gospel, God turned that light on for me, and I will be forever grateful. 
And I pray that you can share in that testimony today yourself. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, oh, I pray that today would be the day. My friends, will you see and believe? Will you recognize that you are a sinner and that because of our rebellious sin, we have turned away from the God who loves us? How do we know he loves us? Because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Maybe you're thinking you're a pretty good person and you really don't need a Savior. But remember, my friends, that God is holy and perfect and righteous. And that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of that sin is death for our rebellion, our intentional rebellion of a holy, righteous, perfect God. But the good news again is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you will just confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, not you might be saved, not you could be saved, but you will be saved. My friends, your, not, your life will never, ever be the same as you will experience the peace of knowing your Lord Jesus Christ. And he will take each day, that's the beginning of your journey of salvation, and from that day forward until the Lord calls you home someday, you will spend each day growing more and more in Christ's likeness as you open up your heart and open up your mind to the truth of his gospel. I pray today, if you're listening here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that today would be that day for you. My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you safe. I look forward to where we can meet again and hopefully very soon. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you all.